Today we are returning to the book of Job, and today we're going to conclude the series on the book of Job. The title for today is Victory in Christ Jesus. I want to talk today about what victory in Christ Jesus really is. I want to talk about how God accomplished it, and I want to talk about how we experience it and come into the fullness of Christ. Now, all of this is illustrated in the book of Job. But before I talk about the book of Job, I want to get right into the question and state some foundational answers. What is victory in Christ Jesus? Well, victory in Christ Jesus is the full and finished redemption in Christ Jesus that has made all things new and in doing so has restored all things back under God and under Jesus Christ as Lord. Now that's a little bit wordy and I'll say it again. Victory in Jesus Christ is the full and finished redemption in Jesus Christ that has made all things brand new and in doing so has restored all things back under God and back under Jesus as Lord. You can see from that that victory in Christ Jesus is very much at the foundation God-centered that all may be brought back under God as sovereign and Jesus as Lord. Now, of course, if that happens, we all get to benefit. But at the core, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it is a story of restoration back again under the lordship and kingship of God. And in order to do that, God could not simply go presto changeo. He had to do it morally, spiritually, and in a way that would not violate free will. So that's victory in Christ Jesus. It's redemption in Christ that has made all things new and restored all things back under Jesus as Lord. Now, there's another way that we could describe victory in Christ Jesus. We could say that victory in Jesus Christ is God's defeat through the cross of Christ of all that is contrary to himself. And then from out of that, it's God's establishment of a new creation in Jesus Christ. And so to summarize that in a, in a few less words, victory in Christ Jesus is all that God has accomplished through death and resurrection in his Son unto a new creation. Now, a third way that we could describe victory in Christ Jesus, and it sort of captures and gathers up the first two as well, is that victory in Christ Jesus is and certainly was accomplished when God Almighty achieved his full will in his Son. How many understand that when God gets his will, when God gets his full will in every way, that's not only God's victory, but it's victory in all of those in whom God gets his will. 
Now, as an extension of this, we can therefore come into a little bit of an understanding and a definition as to how we enter in to the victory of Jesus Christ. We enter into the victory of Jesus Christ when God gets his full will in us. Now, there's a lot of ways to say that and not to be cute about it and not to turn things into cliches, but it really is true that if you want to enter into the victory of Jesus Christ, you have to surrender yourself to him. It is victory through surrender. And there's a lot in that, and we're going to talk about some of that today. And so God not only has finished a victory and a redemption in his Son, for the entirety of the universe, for all of creation, it says, but now he wants to bring humanity into it. Now, we need to realize that this victory is exactly what I just said. It is finished. Jesus is done dying and being raised, isn't he? So the victory that he accomplished by dying and being raised, and all the forgiveness and all the redemption in that, is likewise finished. And certainly the Bible emphasizes this over and over again. It's a foundation of Christianity. It's something that we should not only know and believe doctrinally, but it's something that we should live and walk in as a finished work of Jesus Christ. So this victory is already finished. It's already a done deal. There are no enemies left to defeat. There's not the devil that's left to defeat. Sin isn't left there to defeat. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear that death isn't even out there remaining to be defeated. The last enemy, death, and we could really take that word last and look up the Greek, and we would recognize that by extension the word means also ultimate. So the ultimate, the greatest enemy of all, which is death, has been defeated by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. Therefore, as I noted a minute ago, what is left to accomplish is not to ever win that victory over and over again. The Bible emphasizes the once for all and forever redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So that victory is finished. And so God is never going to refight that battle. But what is left to accomplish is God's calling into his Son and the finished victory, humanity. In other words, people. And then, by extension, what's left to be finished is the actual outworking of the victory of Christ in people. And then, through people, throughout the eternal ages, God wants that victory and the fruits of it manifested. And so, what you have there is a completely finished work. A completely finished redemption. A completely finished victory. But now God is calling humanity into that finished victory so that he may realize his full will in humanity through Christ. And then, as an extension of that, 
throughout the eternal ages, use the body of Christ, use those people to work out his will, to be manifestations of his grace, and to be manifestations of Jesus Christ as Jesus continues, even in the eternal ages, to live through us. And so all of that is God's victory. And if you haven't noted it by now, that God has already finished this victory without any input at all from us. The redemption is finished. It's finished completely independent of humanity. And now, in this age, and this is really the gospel, isn't it? God offers that victory, but he offers it not separate from Christ, not only, quote, because of Christ, end quote. No, God offers that victory solely in Christ and offers it solely in Christ, solely by his grace. Now, what we're going to see here, and I'm going to get into this um, more at detail in a moment. God Almighty does not give us a thing called victory, any more than God Almighty ever gives us a thing called eternal life. In fact, I think I'm perfectly correct in saying that God Almighty doesn't give us things at all. What God does is he gives us Christ, in whom are all things. Now, as it pertains to victory, God Almighty doesn't give us a victory that we can use and harness. He doesn't give us a victory that we can go around naming and claiming it. He doesn't give us a victory that we can go around speaking victory into things. You hear that today. He doesn't do that. God Almighty gives us Christ, and it is only in Him that victory is possible, and therefore the call upon us is not to try to get a victory. The call upon us is to surrender ourselves to the victor in whom all victory is. Now, I'm going to talk about all this in a minute at greater length, as I noted. But in short, we become partakers of God's eternal victory only if we become partakers of Christ. We enter into the victory of Jesus only if Jesus has victory over us. I mean, what do we think the kingdom of God is? It's a king over a kingdom. And we're to enter that kingdom. Sounds to me like Jesus is going to be our Lord. Now, this victory in type and shadow is reflected in the book of Job and in Job's experience. In many respects, Job's life and the pattern and the story that we see in the book of Job mirrors to a greater or lesser degree our experience as we walk with Christ. I don't know that most of us will ever have to suffer like Job did through that incredible season of suffering that is rehearsed in the book of Job. We all do have to suffer. Some of it is more intense than other times. We all experience loss to a greater degree in order to find Christ. You can't find Christ any other way unless you lose yourself. But having said that, 
we can look at the book of Job and we can see a pattern there on how God does work and how he does bring victory into the life of a person who in the beginning really didn't even know he needed it. Remember how Job was at the beginning of the book of Job. We have a bit of a description there. Job, according to God himself, was a good and upright man who loved God, loved the good, and hated evil. We find that Job prayed. He prayed for his family. He did good works. He offered sacrifices unto God. We find that Job was well respected in the community. He had a lot of friends and he taught people about God. And so we find Job in a pretty comfortable life. It's a life where we find he had great riches, great possessions, a big family. He was married, he had a wife, and he had prestige. And at that point, within the light that Job had been given at that point in his walk with God, there was everything good about that, and God doesn't say a bad thing about it at all. Now, as I've shared in a few of the past messages, all that being said, Job is called by God a good and upright man. God knew that Job was just as much of a sinner as the rest of us. He was just as self-righteous as any normal person could be. I don't know that we can call Job any more self-righteous than the rest of us. Some people think the sin of Job was self-righteousness. The Bible never says that. It does say that the friends accused him of that. But God never did. Job was just a person who was walking along in the light he had, doing good works, and yes, we have seen that he thought that those good works were keeping him in the blessings of God and keeping him out of God's displeasure. Absolutely, he thought that, just like most of us do. You look at a normal, fairly prosperous human being who is generally at ease in life today. I don't know how many people there are like that, but I dare say, especially in today's affluent societies, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of people with money, job, career, big family, loving family, people that go to church, do good works, give to charity, are basically coasting through life that way. And they may be praising God for it. They may think that the fact that they tithe or the fact that they do good works is what is getting them blessings from God. There are tens of thousands of people like that. And they give God credit for it. And again, if that's the only light they have, then you can't pronounce a judgment on them, and God wouldn't. But there came a time in the life of Job, and we see that being worked out with this conversation that God had with Satan in heaven where God gave Satan permission to touch Job's life and then finally touch Job's health. We see there came a day when God cut Job off through calamity and trial from his former life. That day came, and at that point, Job 
was never able to go back to the life that he had that once was. He was now plunged into this time of trial. Now this time of trial into which Job was plunged, we could call it transition. We could really call it, if we wanted to come up with a, a term, the crisis of spiritual transition. It's a transition from out of one relationship with God based on limited light through trial, through death and resurrection experience, over into a greater relationship and a greater freedom in God. And what you've got to go through in the meantime is a time of trial. And it's a crisis because it's a turning point. It's, of course, got some possibilities wherein you could choose badly and make things go wrong. But the intention of God in it all is to provide you with an open door whereby you can come to know him. And Job was in that. He couldn't go back to that life that he had before. His own health wouldn't let him do that, let alone the wiping away of all of his wealth and family and so forth. He could only move forward, but he didn't seem to have anywhere to go moving forward. As we read, for instance, in Job 23, Job felt like he was hemmed in. Couldn't go forward, couldn't go backward, couldn't go left, couldn't go right. But he finally was able to say, even though I can't see where I'm going, God sees me. And I will entrust myself to him. And so God was gaining ground there. There was this crisis of spiritual transition. Now, in the beginning, when Job had that comfortable life, he probably, if he was a Christian in that situation, would have said, I have victory in Christ Jesus. And he may have meant that sincerely in his own heart because maybe he understood the doctrines of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And again, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. A lot of people like that. We have a decent life. Things are going pretty well. We maybe aren't suffering right now very much. and Maybe we don't have all that much trouble. And it's so easy at times like that to say, Praise God for His finished work. It is finished. Hallelujah. Victory in Christ Jesus. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not making fun. It's good and right to do that. It's what we need to do and it's all we know to do within a limited understanding. Maybe we are like Job at that point. We have heard by the hearing of the ear. We've read books. We've heard sermons. We've thought about things and we've studied. And praise God it is finished. But how many know that despite the fact that we are absolutely correct, it is finished. And despite the fact that in Christ all enemies have been defeated, and we are absolutely right in declaring so, how many understand that that yet does not mean that that victory of Jesus Christ has been worked out in us through Christ? How many understand that we may acknowledge the victory of God, we may have faith in it, but experientially and in a practical sense, there may be very little victory of the Jesus Christ that we're talking about worked out in us. 
like I said before, if you want to enter into the victory of Jesus, then you have to surrender to him. He has to have victory over you. Now in this, what we see is a key to victory. And it comes back to the same principle that I seem to mention almost every message anymore. And that's the necessity of losing your life to find life in Jesus. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what died in him was everything that is contrary to God. All of the old creation, all of the body of sin, the, the, the man of sin, Adam, all died in Christ. And really, all of the works of the devil, we could say, because the body of sin and old man and Adam was the ground of that. It was the territory of that. So all of that died in Christ. And it went into that grave. And what came out of that grave was not that old man fixed up, resuscitated, or given a retread job. No, the old man and Adam was left in the grave. And what arose on that day in Christ was a new man, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, fundamental to the new creation in Christ Jesus is resurrection life. Jesus Christ not only has resurrection life, he is the resurrection and the life. It says so in John 11. Now note something here. Resurrection life is, if I can put it this way, a kind of life. It's really a life that has a nature to it that is eternal, incorruptible, it is God's own resurrection life in Christ and redeemed in, in the redeemed humanity that Jesus brought forth out of that grave. It's a kind of life that by its very nature already has victory over all sin and death. And it's a finished victory. Again, resurrection life can't be added to it can't be subtracted from because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and he can't be added to or subtracted from. So this is an absolutely finished, incorruptible, eternal life that Jesus Christ has not only won for us, but he has, come, he has become, if I can put it that way. You know, the Bible says that the first man became a living soul. The second man, meaning Christ, became a life-giving spirit. That doesn't mean Jesus ever relinquished his divinity or relinquished his identity in every way. We can think of it as him putting all of the newness on. But having said all of that, in a real sense of the word, Jesus became the resurrection and the life through his redemptive work. Now, I said all that to get back to the dynamic of, of needing to lose our life to find his life. How many see that if we are to enter in to the practical, experiential victory in Jesus Christ, that we are absolutely wasting our time looking for it or in operating out from our old life?
Our old life includes our soul man, our natural man. Look up the word in the New Testament, the natural man, natural, and you'll find that in most cases the word there is suke for soul. Psyche is one of the words we get from that. So the natural man that Paul speaks of, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2, that cannot receive the things of God, he could just as easily have had that translated the soul man. And so the natural man, the soul man, is that old life. And of course included in that old life is emotions, our way of thinking, our natural mind, and we can lump into that our body, although the body isn't the soul, it's part of that natural makeup, part of that natural life. We're wasting our time looking for resurrection life there, for victory there, because in order for victory to come to pass, all that has to die. Can we see that? Victory in Christ Jesus is experienced only if we first lose that old life and are crucified with Christ and come under the work of the cross. And yet we have thousands upon thousands of Christians today who are living from out of soul man, living from out of natural man, thinking that it's the Spirit of God. What deception! How is that possible? Well, we have no idea what the potential is and the capacity is of soul in a human being. Some incredible phenomena can take place. You can generate an awful lot of psychic power. And as I noted earlier, that's the territory that Satan loves. And so, there's no resurrection life in soul. We're told to lose all of that. We're told to ask God to do whatever it takes to bring that soul man, that natural life, fundamental to which is our spirit of self-ownership. We're told to ask God to do whatever it takes to expose that for the fallacy that it is, to bring it down and expose it for the weak and completely barren creature that we are in Adam. Ask God to do whatever it takes to bring that to pass. In fact, i got to say this, if we're not asking God to do whatever it takes, don't expect to walk very far with Jesus Christ. Because Christ said, if any man would follow me, let him pick up his cross daily, for whosoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. There's nothing automatic there. You've got to surrender yourself to Jesus. And if you do, the way to do it, at least in the beginning, as an initial commitment that you stick to and live out from, is to tell God to do whatever it takes to bring us under the work of the cross. How many understand that in the final analysis, that really is all we can do, turn ourselves over to God for whatever it takes. If you're trying to do more than that, you're not only going to fail, but you're liable to get deceived. No, you've got to come back to that. You've got to come back to where you know you can't do anything except tell God to do whatever it takes, and then commit yourself to come along with Him when He does. So there's no resurrection life in the old 
creation. In fact, as I said, the only way to move in resurrection life is to first surrender all of that. And it's the only way. Now, if we will come under the work of the cross, then we will find Jesus Christ as our life. There will be a greater release of the life of Christ in us so that he can begin to live through us and manifest himself through us. How many understand that if Christ is living through us and manifesting himself through us, how many understand that that's resurrection life? That's victory. Because resurrection life is victory. And so there isn't any way for you and I to live out of the power of his resurrection until we first lose that old life, or at least be in the process of losing it, so that we may find Christ as our life. And so once again, we find this to be a fundamental scripture and a fundamental truth as to how to walk with God. Now, Job was plunged into this horrible light, horrible trial, in which basically this is what happened. He was plunged into this trial, and he finally got to the place where he was able to say, I abhor myself. In other words, I see that there's nothing there. All of my idea of my own righteousness was a lie and a fallacy. In fact, it was unbelief and sin. He saw that about himself because he saw God. In other words, he saw the truth. And Job was able to say, I abhor myself because now I see you. And we saw how at the end of that book. Job was then able, because he saw there was nothing he could do about himself, but that God would do everything, Job was able to leave himself alone. How many see that that is victory? How many see that it's victory to leave yourself alone because if you're doing that because of the truth and because of faith, you're leaving yourself alone because you see that Jesus has already done it all and you see that you can't do anything about it anyway. What other course would you take except to leave yourself alone in that case if you saw the truth? Now, unfortunately, this stands as a conviction to us if we're not leaving ourselves alone, if we're still fussing with ourselves, if we're still trying to grab a hold of our natural man and try to make that natural man behave like Jesus or look like Jesus, if we're still trying to fix natural man or any of those bits of nonsense that religion has taught us to do, any of that is evidence that we still haven't seen that it is finished in Christ and we still haven't seen that there's nothing we can do about ourselves anyway. How many understand that? How many understand that the principle I'm describing here is why in the Bible so often faith is called rest? Remember in the epistle to the Hebrews where it says, He that enters into God's rest ceases from his labors as God did from his showing that the Sabbath was a spiritual principle. I like to say it this way, the way in which we cease from our labors is by resting in his finished labor or work. 
you do that, you get a glimpse and begin to experience the finished work of Jesus Christ and have that really sink in and change you and convict you and shock you, you won't be fussing around with yourself anymore because along with that is going to come the knowledge that Jesus did it all because that was the only way anything could get done. Such a simple foundational truth of Christianity, but one that so often seems to escape us. Now, what we see here in the life of Job, as I mentioned, is a pattern and a story. We see a man who is taken from a place of no victory, in fact, not even knowing he needed victory, to a certain degree blind, didn't really understand what was in himself, and yet happy. Living that kind of a life, God apprehends him, plunges him into this, this very great trial, wherein Job has everything about himself exposed, all of his sin exposed, all of his unbelief, all of his self-righteousness. He sees, I am nothing. He sees it because he sees God's everything. And he says, Lord, now I see you, and I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. How many see that's victory? How many see that that is a case where God Almighty got his will in a human being? God has purpose in a human being. And when that happens, there's victory. We don't know what happened to Job from that point on. If you read the rest of the book of Job, it sounds like God blessed him. I would not venture to guess whether he ever had another trial, probably never one like that one, but I'm sure that he had his challenges. But God got his purpose in Job, in that season in his life. And he wants to get a purpose and a victory established in us in the seasons of our life. Now certainly the Christian life as a whole from beginning to end is a crisis of spiritual transition where we are coming out of one humanity into redeemed humanity in Christ and we're coming from out of a position of defeat, whether we know we are there or not, into a victory that we may not have understood was there for us the whole time. And so that pattern is there out of Job. Now, having said that, let's get back into this truth that in Christ alone, there is all victory. There is really everything. Now, what that means is that there is no victory except that we enter in and operate out from that resurrection life in Christ. As I noted, and the only way to do that is to lose our own life. And we have to get that down. You can't come in to Christ as your life, which is the only victorious life there is, until you are crucified with Christ and begin to lose that old life, which really means that it'll lose its grip on you. Now, the truth behind this is that God Almighty has freely given us all things, everything that he has to give, solely in his Son. 
I'll say it in a negative way. God gives us nothing outside of Christ. No, God gives us all things freely, but he gives them only in Christ Jesus, including victorious resurrection life. And so, as I noted earlier, the only way in which you and I can be a partaker of victory is if Christ is our life, if we are a partaker of Christ. Now, can we see right there, if we really grasp that, why it is utter nonsense to think that God has sort of handed us some kind of a power or some kind of a thing called victory that we can just go around spreading and using? You know, there's a lot more error in the word of faith heresy than just their error on this point of victory in Christ Jesus. But on that point alone, it is great error. They treat the victory of Jesus Christ like it's something God's handed us apart from Christ. God hasn't handed us anything apart from Christ. He has handed us Christ freely by his grace, and it is only by coming into an inward realization of Jesus. It is only by experiencing Jesus Christ, the person who dwells in the believer, that you can experience practically and in a living way anything, including victory, that's in him. You want victory, you've got to experience the victor. Now right here is why. 1 John 5 is able to say, faith is the victory. Faith is the victory because faith is a surrender to and really a dependence upon the victor, Jesus Christ, the one in whom there is all victory. And so faith, if I can put it this way, it's mechanical, might sound funny, but if we could liken faith to our plugging in to Jesus as the source of all things, all life, all everything. If Jesus is the victory, plug into him and you will be a partaker of that victory. Don't plug into him and you have nothing, absolutely nothing. Now let's look a little bit about this truth of all things being in Christ, if we turn, for example, to Ephesians chapter 1, you'll find in Ephesians chapter 1, over and over again, the phrases in him, by him, in whom, by Jesus Christ, in Christ, and so forth. You'll find exactly the same kind of phrasing in Colossians chapter 1 and 2, where God emphasizes over and over again that God has not given us things in addition to Christ. God hasn't done stuff to us in addition to Christ or because of Christ. No, God has given us Christ. We've received Christ in whom is all that God has for us. Now, I say that because it seems that no matter how many times this is discussed, or how many different ways it's described and explained, that it is so easy for 
most of us to misapply this truth. We still think that power is some kind of an enablement that God does to us or works upon us. We think power is a thing God endues us with. Some people go so far as to actually believe that Jesus Christ is no more than a secondary power that God adds to us to bring out our full potential. It makes Jesus sort of an ornament that God hangs on us. We're the Christmas tree. Jesus becomes an enhancement. He becomes an inner light that lights us up and makes us all the more beautiful. And even though we could give him glory for that, and a lot of people try to, it's still us that's being pretty. It's still us looking like Jesus. It's still us harnessing the power of God and doing the will of God because we've harnessed the power. Why in the world do we think the Bible takes great pains to emphasize over and over again that it is only because we are exposed as weak that there can be any strength. It sounds ironic. It may be shocking to some. But it never has been and never will be God's will to make you and I strong. God Almighty is on a crash course and absolutely determined. And nothing will take him off of this purpose. He's absolutely determined to show us we are weak. Now, I'm not going to say that God's going to make us weak. No, we already are. What God does is pull the blinders off and show us we've always been weak. So God's not going to make us strong. He's going to make us weak so that the power of Christ, really the power who is Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 1, can not only be in us, but he can live through us. To the extent that you are still operating from out of your own religious strength, you will be weak in Christ, even though you might think you're strong. No, all of that has to be brought down to an utter and complete collapse. God has to prove to you and I that there's nothing in there, that we can't live the Christian life. Now again, I say that because we so often think that God has given us a power to live for him, a power to overcome sin, a power to build character, or a power to look like Jesus, or a power to win any victory that we might think needs to be won. Some people call this the power of the Holy Spirit, which it isn't. And we think that God's given us a thing called power, and that we're supposed to somehow, by faith, Grab a hold of this power and harness it and use it to God's glory. And what usually happens, because we don't know Jesus and we don't see the truth, what usually happens is that we try to harness this so-called power to make our natural man and our soul man behave like a Christian. We try to make our mind work like we think a Christian's mind ought to work. We try to make our emotions work, like we think a Christian's emotions ought to work. 
We have this standard that we think we're supposed to be. We think it's to look like Jesus. And we try to harness this so-called power and change ourselves and morph ourselves into this person we think we should be. And we think, well, sure, God's given us the power to become sons of God. This will work. Well, if I wanted to be sarcastic, I guess I would ask the question, how's that working out for you? Again, God Almighty wants us to be utterly and completely exposed as weak. God Almighty is working toward us losing all of that old life in our attempts to fix it. If we're trying to harness some power to achieve this in natural man, how many see we are absolutely working at cross-purposes with God? We're trying to save what God tells us to lose. We're trying to salvage what God wants on the scrap heap. May God Almighty open our eyes to this truth. Because until we see it and get it settled, that there is nothing in us at all, we're not going to leave ourselves alone. And we're going to be greatly hindered in our walk with Jesus Christ. Well, God has not given us a power to use, not even a power to do his will. That may shock some people, but he hasn't. What God has given us is Christ. Who the Bible says in us is the power of God. But how many see Christ can't live through us? He can't be the power of God in us if we're out here trying to operate in the soul power. He'll just sit back and wait until we exhaust ourselves. Now, the Christian life is supposed to operate such that God Almighty, through the work of the cross, is going to bring us to the ground in weakness. We're going to be like Paul. When I am weak, we're going to see then the power of Christ can operate in and through us. Remember how Paul said to stand in the Lord, in the power of his might. In fact, I think the exact words were, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. There's no us in there. We're weak, and it's only then that we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, all of this is only possible if we come into an inward realization of Jesus Christ and begin to discover in him and experience all that God has given in him, including victory. I mentioned here Ephesians, where I wanted to look at for just a few moments, and I mentioned all the times in here where it talks about in Christ. Notice verse 7 in Ephesians 1. It says about Christ, in whom we have redemption. Now, 1 Corinthians 1.30 also says that Jesus Christ is made to be unto us redemption. How many see right there that redemption is not a thing? That redemption is not something that God does to us by acting upon us, sort of like to change us. Lots of people think, for instance, that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. A lot of people think that those things are things God hangs on us because Jesus died for us. They're 
there, there's sort of things that God does by acting on us that are because of Jesus are, or they are in addition to Jesus. When in fact the Bible teaches that the fruit of the Spirit is Jesus. He's the vine, we're the branches, but whose fruit is it? The branches? No, it's the vine's fruit. The branches are those through whom the fruit is manifested. No, Jesus Christ is redemption. His very person and life in us is redemption. When you are saved, you are joined to the Lord and become one spirit with him. How many know that's why you're redeemed and alive with eternal life? Because he is the life and he is redemption and you are joined and made one with him. You're partaking of him. And so you are partaking of victorious resurrection life and redemption. And that's what it's getting at here in Ephesians 1.7. In whom, in Christ, we have redemption. Not in addition to Christ we have redemption. Not merely because of an historical act Jesus accomplished, we have redemption. Not if we put our faith in Christ, God will be so happy he'll reward us with redemption, separate from Christ. No, Jesus Christ the person is the very embodiment of all redemption and all life. And so it is only by being joined to him and coming into an inward realization of him that we partake of life and victory, let alone grow in it. How important it is to see this, that it's all in him, not because of him merely, of course, all of it's made possible because of what he did and because of who he is. But we've got to get a distinction here. When we say that God has given us redemption or life or anything because of Jesus, really what I think most of us mean by that is that Jesus did something and it made it possible for God then to give to us these other things as gifts. I think that's the way we think of it. That's wrong. Jesus died and was raised, and he became God's gift. For God so loved the world that he gave. How many understand that Christ in you, the hope of glory, is God's gift, and it's the only one he gives, and yet in that one gift of his Son is everything else. Like it says in Colossians, in Christ is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You and I are wasting our time trying to find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in addition to Christ out here through some experience or whatever. No, you got to know Christ. As Christ is unfolded, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are unfolded. So is victory. And so it's all in him. In Christ we have redemption. How many know that that means in Christ we have victory? Because his redemption is victory. His very person, his very presence in us is victory. And so, if you and I want to come into victory in Christ Jesus, we've got to come into Christ himself. We have to allow God, yes through suffering, but through any means, to form Christ in us. 
to bring us into an inward realization of Jesus Christ. We have to allow God to accomplish that by a work of the cross whereby we lose our lives, bearing about in that old life the dying of the Lord Jesus, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in us. And that life is resurrection, fully finished and complete victorious life. What kind of a life ought to emerge from that? Is it supposed to be a, a sinless life, a trouble-free life? A life that never has any failings? Well, that's not realistic because we still have the other nature to contend with. How many understand that there is a separation of soul and spirit in us? That when we were saved and joined to the Lord, we became one with him in spirit. But everything outside of that union, which we might call resurrection union in Christ, everything outside of that remains natural. We are to live in and out from Christ in that spiritual union. And we are to allow the work of the cross upon what's outside of that union. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 is talking about. And as we do that, we are losing our life. And there's a greater release of Christ. And the life that will emerge, well, it should be a life of a stand by faith in the victory of Jesus. How many understand that a believer is never to try to win a victory? If you seem to be facing enemies, God's call upon you is not to try to win the victory that Jesus Christ has already won. How many understand that you do that enough, you're really in unbelief? For example, if you are inundated by fear and condemnation, even if you think God's, that it's coming from God, how many understand that the key there is not to turn in on that and try to fight it and make it go away? The key to overcoming sin isn't even to turn in upon sin and try to beat it over a head, over the head and beat it into submission with a big club. No. A believer is never to try to win a victory. Because Jesus Christ has already won every victory. We're not to try to fight our way into a place of victory. As I noted, we are to stand in his victory. And we're not going to do that unless we believe it's finished. Now, if we do stand in his victory, then a believer is supposed to live from out of the eternal position of victory, which is really what it means to live out from the person of Jesus Christ as our life. And again, I can't overemphasize this. We're wasting our time trying to do this on the basis of natural man. We have to lose that let it go and fully and completely hand ourselves over to Jesus Christ that he may be our life. How many understand that what I'm describing here may be difficult to grasp as far as how it works or what it looks like? But how many understand that God and God alone is able to make us to understand so that this will be reality for us? I can give many explanations, and at the end of the day, it's just going to sound like a how-to. 
It's just going to sound like a technique. It's going to sound like this is the button that you need to push, and that's the button. I talk about losing your life to find true life in Christ, and I'm sure people will ask, well, how do I do that? Well, how do you think you do it? You surrender to the Lord. And my point is that there isn't a thing that you go out there and you do that in and of itself constitutes surrender. This is faith. This is relationship. This is a matter of coming in to the reality and into a realization of a person, Jesus Christ. And if we do that, we're going to understand what this is talking about, and we're going to understand what it means. And there isn't any other way to. This is why that we can read the Bible till we're blue in the face and never hear a word it's saying. We have to begin to see the person it's talking about. And so, we've got to lose our life to find true life in Him. And then having done that, we're not to fight to win a victory. We are to stand by faith against all contradiction and enemies in His victory. And if we do that, then that victory that is finished by God will begin to become experiential in us. Go back to Job. How many understand that the battles that he fought during that trial were battles that he would not even know to fight as he was in the beginning without the trial? When you're in a trial, you're faced with enemies, contradictions, and questions that you will never face unless you are in a trial. Oh, you can do a theology lesson about the trials and tribulations in the Christian life. You can get the doctrines down pat. But until you are in a trial and your faith is tried, you will not understand what it means to have faith tried, and you won't face questions that you'll face there. You won't be brought face-to-face -face with enemies that you will be brought face-to-face -face there. You won't be brought down into an utter weakness until you are in those trials. This has to become experiential. But, once it does become experiential and you stand by faith, then you know Christ and His victory in you becomes experiential. How many, how many understand that once the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, that if all that the United States would have done was draw up a blueprint for victory and then say, hallelujah, we beat them. That would have been utter nonsense. How many also understand that once that war was over and Japan was defeated, how stupid it would have been to still be thinking about invading Japan, fighting the finished battle all over again, just as nonsensical. No, this victory in Jesus Christ is finished. It can't get any more finished than it already is. But now God Almighty wants to reveal that to us and bring us into it so that we may be partakers of his finished victory. And the only way we can be is by becoming a partaker of Christ. And that's going to require trials and tribulations. It's going to, be, it's going to require standing against all that would contradict Jesus. Ephesians 6, to close this, this is in a sense what Job did for 38 chapters. 
I'm not going to read the whole passage. I want to get the principle. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That's a realization of Jesus. That's a realization of His finished work. Be strong in that and put on the whole armor of God. Now notice in the rest of this passage how many times the emphasis is upon standing. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And if you read this, it's clear that the wrestling is not a wrestling to take ground. It's not a wrestling to win the victory. It's a wrestling to stand and hold ground. And he says to do that. Verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, I really like that. Have you ever gotten to the place where you feel like you have done everything there is to do, including praying and crying, and still nothing seems to be happening? This is Paul's answer for that. Having done all, stand. There's nothing else you can do. Be like one of those Israelites marching around Jericho for 13 times where nothing was happening. I bet you that they felt silly doing that after a while. We would. Marching around Jericho 13 times, we might say to the Lord, gee, Lord, why didn't you collapse the walls the first time? Well, he was building their faith. And that's what he does. When we stand against the walls of the enemy in Christ, in the power of his might, despite our weakness, the experiential, very real victory of Jesus Christ will be worked out and manifested through us, and it's the only way it will be. And then finally, in verse 14, stand therefore. And so, victory in Christ Jesus is the full and finished redemption in Christ that has made everything new, and in doing so, restored everything back under God, under Jesus. But God is calling humanity into that victory so that we might have that victory worked out in us in Christ and experienced. And then in the eternal ages, through that same humanity, God can work out his eternal purpose in redemption and victory and gather everything up under Jesus Christ as Lord.